The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. So first question kind of came to me when we were doing our little talk before the mics went live. What makes a good ballet dancer? What makes a good ballet dancer? Well, uh, first of all, uh, a lot of hard work. <laughs> but uh, you have to have the talent, and there's many aspects to that. There's the physical talent, as in any sport. You really have to have the coordination, uh, some people have uh, more more of an extension in their limbs. That helps, especially for the women. You, you have to have strength. You have to have uh, agility, be able to, to change directions quickly. A lot of the things that are the same in, in athletics are true for ballet. But then in addition, you have to be able to understand what it means to be an artist, to uh, communicate emotion through movement to understand that there's a spiritual aspect to it. There's a, a higher calling. It's complicated. And then you have to just really, you really have to have been lucky enough to study from, if you start later than 10, you might as well not, not expect to ever be a professional. Eight is best. And uh, there's some, some studies that say, you know, it takes 10 years to become an expert at something. And uh, so eight to 18, and then you join a professional ballet company and, and uh, work hard all over again. So it's like almost like starting from eight to 18, you study. And then when you get to be 18, you have to, to uh, uh, start all over again in the, in the hierarchy because there's a hierarchy in the ballet company of the corps de ballet, which is the group that dances behind the soloists. And then the, the principals are the, the highest on the, on the chain. Well, you, you, some people it takes longer. Everybody is, everybody's different, of course. Some people it takes a little bit longer, and sometimes the uh, tortoise actually is the, wins the prize more than the hare. But uh, sometimes there are some people who, you know, even they, they get actually into professional ballet company when they're 16 or 17, and by the time they're 19, they're a principal. But it's rare, but it happens. So, I mean, some people very much just have, they're just more gifted. And uh, it's kind of apparent when somebody's like that. It's the same in music. A lot of the, the young musicians are child prodigies. And then, and interestingly enough, some of those people burn out very quickly, too. So it's complex. At what age did you start dancing? I started at eight. Yeah. I mean, actually, my parents took me to see The Nutcracker in New York City when I was five years old. And I immediately fell in love with ballet. 
the, the lights went down, the curtain went up, the live orchestra played the overture, and, and then the curtain went up, and I, I was mesmerized. And I thought, what can I do to be on the stage with those people? And so I said to my parents, I want to be in the Nutcracker. And they said, well, you have to study ballet to do that. And I said, okay. And they called up the school that was connected with the, with the uh, company, the New York City Ballet. The School of American Ballet was the official school. And they said, well, we don't take anybody at five. Too young. The bones are not strong enough. The muscles aren't developed. We start them at eight. So if he's interested in three years, give us a call back. And my parents thought I'd forget about it. But I didn't. The next year, they do the Nutcracker at Christmas time. So the next year, I said at Christmas time, I want to see the Nutcracker at six. And then at seven. And then at eight, I said, okay, can I have the lessons now? So I, I never let go of that idea. It was just one of those things that it just grabbed me. And uh, then I studied from eight to 17. And then I got an invitation from George Balanchine, who was the artistic director of the New York City Ballet to join the company. So how do you pick your dancers? Do they come to you? They audition? They audition and uh, from all over the country. We've had as many as 15 or 16 people from foreign countries in the company over different times of the company's history. We have more Americans now than we've ever had. Uh, in the beginning, we actually needed foreign dancers because the best American dancers went to bigger companies. And so if we wanted to have really good dancers, we had to take more dancers from foreign places, from, from, from Europe and from uh, South America. But now we actually have a reputation, and so we have more Americans. But we still like to have a mix. It's nice to have. Uh, we've had Chinese dancers. We've, we've had Russian dancers. We've had Romanian. We've had Moldavian. We've had uh, French, Canadian, Paraguay, Uruguay. We still have... One of our ballet masters is from Uruguay. One, one of our principal dancers is, is from Paraguay. So we have a, a mix of, of people, and it, it adds flavor. You know, uh, the, the, the more uh, mix there is, the, the, the more interesting it becomes. Sure. Do you have anybody that has a story like yours that grew up from five that wanted to do this? I mean, I would say the majority of dancers knew they wanted to be dancers from a very, very young age. It hit them, they, they, and they went for it. Because when you actually do the studying, the studying is very boring. It's all about physically being able to do this a little bit better, to point your foot a little bit better, to raise your leg higher, to jump a little bit more, to turn a little faster, a little slower, or more times. So it, it, it becomes kind of, it's, it's, it's a repetitive process, and it's, it's kind of boring. And what, what kept me interested was that I got to be in the Nutcracker and go on the stage. And so, and the, the children in the first act of the Nutcracker have a very big part. Of, part they, Their parts are large. So they're an important part of why the production is successful or not successful. So it, it was really great to get out on the stage and then that kept you going for another year it, with the grind of just being able to get better and better. At a certain point, I wasn't even sure I wanted to dance when I was like 14 because I was too old to be a child in the Nutcracker and I was too young to be a dancer in the professional company. So there was four years where I didn't actually get to go on the stage at all and, and had to still do the grind of get, you know jump a little higher, turn a little more, 
get your leg up a little, point your foot, turn out, because you have to turn out in ballet to be able to be successful. And that also is a whole other struggle. So, and some people have trouble turning out. I, I was lucky enough that my hips were flexible enough not to have that trouble, but it was still, it's still a, you have to think about it all the time. So it became boring at a certain point and I thought, well, maybe I'll do something else. And this, this might not be what I want to do with the rest of my life. I kind of forgot about the performing aspect as, as it receded. But uh, I, I kept at it and I, I also studied acting and, and I was interested in a lot of other things, writing and poetry and it kept me going. And I just, just when I was going to probably give up dancing, I found a teacher who brought me back to my original understanding of why I wanted to do this, which was to be an artist. He was an extraordinary mentor and then then I got asked to be in the company. So, but I would say the majority of dancers have a passion for it, at least by the time they're eight. And some, well, I mean, today people study much earlier than, than, than we did. They only took people at eight then. Today they take people at, even in professional school, they take people at six, seven. And so, and, and a lot of girls, especially girls study ballet when they're even three or four. It's not really ballet, it's kind of movement, but they get interested that way. And uh, I would say if you ask the majority of dancers in the professional ballet companies when they got interested, most of them would say by the time they were eight years old. Do you think that original drive, do you think that changed any? Because I imagine a lot of kids, when they get up on stage, they'd like, you know, the attention, the bright lights, you know, all the, the artistry and stuff. Do you think that was your original drive? What was yours originally? And how did it progress? Well, I mean, I, I thought it was just fantastic to be in this world of the imagination. And also, you know, it's, it, we, don't, we don't speak. It's wordless. But we communicate thoughts through body language. And the music is a great inspiration. Even, even the ballets that don't have a plot, they still have an emotional hook. Music, of course, is the thing that drives it because music you know, music can be sad, music can be happy, music can be militaristic, music can be so many different things. It, it, music evokes emotion. And so that emotion is then translated into the choreography and then uh, the dancers evoke that choreography, those emotions on the stage. So I think that what drew me in the first place was that sort of emotional, poetic world that's created on the stage and, and, and then w wanting to be part of that wanting to be part of that whole, the world that's created on the stage is, an, is like a, a world within our world. It's so exciting because it's pure, it's, it's clean, <laughs> especially ballet. Of, of all the arts, I think beauty is one of the things that's the most important aspect a lot of the time, not always, but we, we try to evoke harmony, we try to evoke beauty, we try to evoke a world of pure emotion. And, and uh, that's, I think that's what keeps most people interested in doing it, but it also is why people come to see it. How much of that choreography, the set pieces, just artistic direction, how much does that derive from like tradition as opposed to like your take on it? Hmm, that's a, that's a very interesting question. So the Nutcracker actually, when it was first uh, performed in Russia, was a failure. And uh, it didn't really go anywhere. And... Uh, then there were many revisions, and eventually it was it was semi successful in Russia, but it never became became in Russia. Uh, and it was you know the, the music is by Tchaikovsky. The music is fantastic. Tchaikovsky made three great ballets: uh, the Nutcracker, the Sleeping Beauty, and Swan Lake. 
all three are sort of the most famous ballets still performed today from the past. And uh, all, all three have different versions, depending on, on what company they're done in. They all are based on the traditions, but The Sleeping Beauty is the closest, where most people do the same version, which we consider as close to the original. The original choreographer was a man named Marius Petipa. Uh, Petipa uh, came from France and became the artistic director, the head ballet master of the Imperial Ballet in Russia. The Nutcracker really didn't become super famous until George Balanchine, who, who was my mentor and, and artistic director in New York. He was So he then came from Russia to America. So all the ballet masters originally all over the world were French because that's where it's sort of really solidified. Ballet started in Italy, but very briefly. And then uh, Louis XIV, the Sun King, really codified ballet and opera and made it important in France. And then and then uh, ballet at the Paris Opera was the epitome of ballet. And then everybody else, all the French people that couldn't get a job at the Paris Opera had to go somewhere else. So there was Bourneville who went to Denmark. And there were people who went all over the world. Petipal went to Russia. When Balanchine, then, then all the Russians started coming. So ballet sort of switched. The headquarters became Russia. And the Paris sort of receded, they, they continued to create work and they continued to exist, but they weren't at the forefront. The forefront then became the, the Russian czars really loved ballet and they supported the ballet. So Russia became the most important place for dance. And then the Russians at that time could travel freely. And so they went then all over the world. Balanchine came to America and started the New York City Ballet. His Nutcracker is what made the Nutcracker the most famous ballet in America, that Nutcracker in New York. Then then people did a version of the Nutcracker. It's based on the original story, and everybody uses the same music, but many people do it different choreography. And the Nutcracker that we do here in, in, in Raleigh is my Nutcracker, based on, on a lot of the stuff that Balanchine did, which is based on a lot of the stuff that Pettipa did. But... It's all unique choreography to Carolina Ballet, and it's my choreography. So we talked a little bit about what drove you to the ballet, but what drove you to Raleigh? Well, uh, in, in the same way that ballet masters went from France to all over the world and from Russia to all over the world, uh, everybody couldn't be the director of the New York City Ballet. And so uh, when I had the opportunity, I, actually when I first retired from dancing, I was the director of the Pennsylvania Ballet in Philadelphia for almost 10 years. And I had a falling out with the board of directors there. And so that job ended. And then I heard that there was a man in Raleigh, his name was Ward Purrington, who wanted to start a ballet company. I submitted my resume and he hired me. And together we actually started the Carolina Ballet from scratch. And what was fascinating about it to me was the chance to not take over someone else's company and have to spend years trying to, to merge my vision with theirs. Here, I had a clean slate. It, it was my vision from the very beginning, and it was what I believe ballet could be and should be. And we developed it over the, it's now 22 years. And I just actually retired and passed, passed the uh, reins of the company onto a young man named Zalman Raphael. And he is uh, now the artistic director. I'm still with the company as a choreographer, as a teacher. 
but I'm not running the company any longer. And that, that just started July 1st. And so it's very exciting for me to step back from having to do the day-to-day. This is a, sort of my fourth act, actually, because my first act was the New York City Ballet as a dancer. My, my second act was running the Pennsylvania Ballet. My third act was founding the Carolina Ballet and running it for 22 years. And then my fourth act is stepping back and seeing it thrive under a new young generation a young director and younger dancers now, but the dancers can constantly are younger. Uh, when I when I first started directing the Pennsylvania Ballet, I was 33 years old, and uh, I retired from dance at 33 and took over the, the direction of this company in Philadelphia. And some of the dancers were 28. I mean, some of them were 17 and 18, but several of them were 28, 29. So I wasn't that much older than them. Now... I'm much older. I'm still not going to tell you my age, but I'm 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 retirement age, <laughs> and uh, some of the dancers are 17, so uh, they could be almost be my grandchildren. <laughs> Is there anything about Raleigh that appealed more so than somewhere like Charlotte or Wilmington? I'm just thinking because there's a lot of there's a lot of art that gets done here. I think it's a different flavor than the kinds that get done in like bigger cities. Well, again, I was able to sort of really do it my way. This man, Ward Purrington, who who uh, uh, had the idea to have a ballet company in Raleigh, and, and he, he's, he's, uh, his family goes way back in Raleigh history. Uh, and he and his wife, Charlotte, they, they really thought there could be a ballet company here. But they didn't, they didn't know that much about ballet, and they didn't want to impose their thoughts. So I, I got to have a completely free reign on how I wanted, what, what kind of ballets I wanted, what kind of repertoire I wanted. I wanted a lot of new work, I, a lot of it by, created by me. And then I brought in some, some really terrific people. I brought in Lynn Taylor Corbett from New York, who's a, a choreographer not only of classical ballet, but of Broadway and movies. She did the movie Footloose and uh, she did the, several Broadway shows including Swing uh, on Broadway. She directed and choreographed. So she brought a different flavor, but something that I really believed that, that I mean, ballet can be so many different things. That, that, that's the wonderful thing about our company is that if you come to one program in September and it has a world premiere by a, 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 a composer from San Francisco and, and the, the choreography is by myself and, and uh, Zalman, and then it has a balancing ballet on that program and it has some other work by me, uh, it's all short, different kinds, different aspects of what ballet can be. And then in, in October, you come and we're going to do Frankenstein as a ballet. And it's a world premiere that uh, Zalman Raphael is going to choreograph. And if you come in, in November, I'm going to choreograph for the first time Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. And that's known as the Dance Symphony. And the reason it's known as the Dance Symphony is because Wagner, the composer, when he heard Beethoven's, they were contemporaries, when he heard Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, he said, this is the apotheosis of the dance. And so then the, the, the symphony after that got nicknamed the Dance Symphony. And several choreographers have attempted to do a version of the Seventh Symphony, and none of them have been that successful. So I'm I'm looking forward to the challenge, and, and we're going to do that uh and the reason it's, it's called the Dance Symphony is because the rhythms are so potent. And the rhythms of the Seventh Symphony are more important than the melody 
or the counterpoint or the harmony or the other the other tools of music uh, take a, a back seat to the rhythms. And of course, you dance to the rhythm. So that's that's how it became the dance symphony. So it's very exciting for me to choreograph that. And I'm uh, I have a lot of good ideas, and I'm looking looking forward to doing that. And so that's going to be completely different than the story of Frankenstein or than shorter works that we're doing in 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 the fall, in in September. So and then in February, March, April, we have, we're doing reviving my full length Macbeth in April. Uh, we're doing Cinderella. In, in May, uh, in, in uh, March, we have a women's program. Women's, we're, we're featuring women's choreography, women from around the country that Zalman has found, uh, young, talented women, and then a, a young woman from, from our own company uh, who, who uh, just joined the company a few years ago, but she had a desire to choreograph, and Zalman is giving her a chance to, to do that. Her, her, her name is Jenny Palmer. And so she she's going to be choreographing for the first time, not for the first time. Choreo- she choreographed many other places for small for schools and smaller companies, but the first time she's choreographing for a large professional ballet company. So that's exciting as well. And then uh, in February we're doing an American composers program and uh, featuring Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. So it, if you come to the ballet at any time, you're not seeing the whole of what we have to come to all seven programs to understand the scope and, and the, the, the breadth of what we actually can do with ballet. Yeah. None of these sound like stale or bland ideas. Like I'm not hearing any stale ideas. Sometimes you get a, you get a bill for something and you're like, I've seen this a hundred times. They've not put in a, a spin on it. George Balanchine was like considered during his lifetime to be probably the most important choreographer in the world. And the company was was a, a creative hotbed of his work, and his uh, co-artistic director was named Jer- Jerome Robbins, who came from ballet but also did Broadway. Uh, Jerome Robbins was the choreographer of Fiddler on the Roof, of West Side Story, choreographer and director, Fiddler on the Roof, West Side Story, Gypsy, I mean, uh, 20 Broadway shows, uh, as well as ballet. And the two of them were constantly creating, and then... They had festivals where they actually brought in sometimes as many as 10 other choreographers to work with the company. So it was a very creative place. And I really felt that it was important if I was going to start a ballet company from scratch that it was going to be creative. And of course, we also do George Balanchine's works. And we're going to do his Rubies from Jewels uh, opening in September. And that's, that's going to close our program in September. It's really exciting ballet. And it's important to continue to do the work from the past. And we revive the work that I've created, some of it 22 years ago. We revive that every three or four years, different things. But it's also really important to constantly push the envelope and do new work. And, and that's, we, we call it being created on. The dancers are, are the clay, right? But the, the dancers also bring something to the table. They don't just do what the choreographer tells them to do. They, they bring their own personality. They bring their own way of moving. The choreographer picks the dancer in order to, because this person has a sprightly quality. This person has a melancholy quality. This person can do this. This person can do that. This person turns better. That person gets their leg up higher. There's all sorts of reasons why you pick the dancer to be in your ballet when you know what the ballet's about. Oh, that's the dancer that fits this part best. And then they then bring much more than you even imagined that they could bring. 
and they help. When the dance is created on them, they're part of that creation. So when you're an actor, you get the script. The script is already done. There are changes that happen. If, if it's a new play before it goes on the stage, sometimes the, an actor will make a suggestion. Uh, the, the playwright will think about a new idea after seeing the actor act a scene, and add, add a line or change something or add a scene. But it's not the same. The playwright doesn't stand there and say, okay, now you say this, and then you say it, and then, well, could you say it a little bit more like that? And then they do this, and then they say, what about this? It doesn't work like that. The, the, the actors are to and, and singers in an opera. It's all done in advance. The majority of it is done in advance. The ballet, there's nothing done in advance. The, the, I mean, the choreographer gets the idea either from, from, from a piece of music or from a story that they're, they're trying to tell the story and then find the music that has the emotion that tells the story. But you go into the room and there's nothing. There's you and the dancer and the music. And then you create it from nothing, from scratch, right there in the studio. So the dancer is very much a part of that creation in a way that no actor is or no singer is or no musician is because the music is also composed in private and then they might make a few changes once it, the composer hears it in the, in the context of the orchestra playing it or the pianist playing it or the quartet playing it. But for the most part, it's already created and then the, 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 act, the actors or the musicians or the singers interpret, they still interpret and they're still very important. But when the dancers are having the work created on them with the choreographer, that that's different. It's, 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 it's more dynamic and it's more exciting. And the dancers love to have the work created on them and not just learn work that's from the past. A word I was thinking of was inspired. And like, it seems like a lot of your work is inspired. What sort of things would you see or hear or feel that inspires the movements that you guys do on stage i know it's like if i hear a song any kind of song it, it'll inspire some kind of story with me and i write but what inspires the stuff that you guys do well i think there's actually two ways that you find the inspiration to create a work and w one is that you have a story that you really love and you want to tell and then well can it can it be told in dance I and mean, not every story is really right for dance but in some ways, fairy tales really work because they're pretty simple. You, you, you can't tell a complex, complex intellectual story in dance because you need words. But you can tell stories that you couldn't tell with words in dance because you can tell stories. In, and and this, this is, I think, one of the problems with people coming to the ballet is that when, when they come and there's no words, they, if they've never been, they go, well, uh, w what's going on, right? And instead of just letting it happen to them, they, they put up a little resistance because they're they're waiting for the explanation. <laughs> but if you just like go and watch, well, the plotless ballets are easier in some ways than the story ballets because it's just beautiful dancing to beautiful music, and and then there's there's emotions involved. So and sometimes the emotions are are not pretty, but you get an emotional charge uh, from, from the ballets that don't have a plot. And, uh, you know, they used to call plotless ballets abstract ballets, like abstract paintings. 
But in actual fact, you can't have an abstract ballet. And Balanchine was the first person to say that. He said, my ballets are not abstract, even though people called them abstract, because they didn't have a plot. But he said, they're plotless. They don't, they don't tell a story, but they, they're still human beings on stage expressing feelings. And music expresses feelings and dance expresses feelings and s- certain feelings that you could never express with words. And everybody knows there are feelings that go way beyond words. And so in a way, some things that ballet can do that words, words can't even compete with. And then when you tell a story, you have to find the music that supports it emotionally. And the best thing, of course, is to have a score commissioned especially for you. So when I when I did Macbeth four years ago, and we're bringing it back in April, I mean, it's a great Shakespeare play. Uh, what's, what's great, what's very important to Shakespeare is his language. So you take the language away, you just have the plot, right? Now what you can do is heighten the emotions. And you can do that with the right music and the right choreography. I was lucky enough to have a professor here at uh, NC State, J. Mark Scarce. He's composed several ballets for me, but I think the the most important one that we've done together is Macbeth. And he came up with the most incredible music that tells the story. And uh, it really inspired my choreography. So, uh, so other times, you know, you, you find music that already exists and you it has the right right emotional complexity to tell the story, but it's so much better when you actually work with a composer and and say, I want this for this scene, or they say, how about that? And again, it's a collaboration, it's a back and forth, and you come up with a whole, I mean, the score is almost uh, a little over two hours, so it's it's a lot of music. Well, I've never been ballet. How long would it last a few hours? Uh, Most ballets are around two hours, sometimes... uh, a full length can be a little bit longer. Uh, even even a, a repertory evening of different works, it can go anywhere between just under two hours to just two and a half hours. Romeo and Juliet and Sleeping Beauty, some of the old, really old ballets, they used to be much longer, and we we've cut them in the even in the twentieth century. They they were cut down, but uh, they they're still they still last almost three hours. You know, people used to. They didn't have video games. They didn't have uh, record players. They didn't have uh, radios. <laughs> when these ballets were first created, like the Sleeping Beauty, people were thrilled to go to the ballet for four or five hours because they didn't get to do that much. If, when they were home and, and, and even, you know, before electricity, it got dark and you had to read by candlelight. It was, <laughs> it was a whole different world. But t- today, uh, a lo- it's considered long when it lasts uh, two hours and 45 or two hours and 50 minutes. There's very few ballets that are that long anymore. We try to get them out of there in less than two and a half hours. So a typical night of the ballet, what do you guys, like, is there like a dress code? Is there food? Is there an intermission? Yeah, there are usually intermissions. Uh, sometimes there's only one. It's in two halves. And sometimes it's two intermissions. Yes, there's uh, no dress code any longer. When I was growing up, you couldn't get into the ballet unless you had a shirt and tie. But today, people come dressed any way they want to, and we're happy to have them. Of course, it would be nice if people kind of... It's, it's, it's an occasion to go out at, uh, to a theater and to a ballet. I'd, I'd love people to 
use it as a, a chance. And some people do. We have actually one couple who comes to the ballet in a tuxedo and a ball gown. And they, they it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not a gala. It's not a special performance. Every time they come, they wear a tuxedo and a ball gown. And then sitting next to them is somebody in shorts and a summer shirt. So <laughs> it, it's really any, anything you want it to be. Sometimes we have live music. We will have live music uh, for the first program for one of the pieces. It's a, a commission uh, score for cello and bass, just two instruments. And the rest of the program is with uh, recorded music. October for the Frankenstein and the we open that with a small ballet, Cooleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. That's commissioned music, again, from J. Mark Scarce, but it's going to be recorded in advance, and then we're going to play the recording. But it's still brand-new music. And then in November, we have live symphony. We're using the Chamber Orchestra of the Triangle uh, out of Durham and uh, COT, and 40 musicians, and we, we have... Uh, Beethoven's uh, Seventh Symphony, as I said, with live musicians, and then Grieg's Piano Concerto. And for the Grieg Piano Concerto, we're bringing down William Wolfram, a very well-known pianist from New York who tours, plays all over the world. His name is Bill Wolfram. He's going to be fantastic, and we're really looking forward to hearing his interpretation of the Grieg Piano Concerto. And then we have live music for the Macbeth, again in April, and live music for Cinderella with orchestra in May. And the other two programs are recorded music because we can't always afford to have the live music. It was good having you. All right. Thank you. We look forward to going to the ballet. I think uh, Frankenstein sounds really interesting. And I hope a lot of other people will find it as interesting as I have. That's our show for this week. Tune in next week for some additional interviews with the arts. Thank you to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting of applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye on the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 License. Stay tuned for your usual programming of Amazing Indie Music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.